Welcome to Inside IR, a podcast series by Herbert Smith Freehills that explores the latest developments in the Australian industrial relations landscape. Hello and welcome to Inside IR, the Australian industrial relations podcast, the series that arms HR, IR and legal professionals with the latest industrial relations thinking. My name is Rowan Doyle, I'm a partner in the industrial relations practice at Herbert Smith Freehills. And I'm very excited today about our 15th episode of Inside IR to be joining you from our Brisbane office and excited not only because it's the third of our closing loopholes editions of Inside IR, but because I'm joined by two exceptional practitioners from our Brizzy team, Matthew Cameron, Executive Counsel, and also the leader of our workplace health and safety practice, Aaron Anderson. Welcome, Aaron and Matt. Thanks very Pleased much. to invite you up here to Brisbane, Ralph. <clears throat> it's a pleasure to be here. Always is in Brisbane. And um, I mean, Aaron and Matt, your first uh, appearances on Inside IR. So we're very, very excited to have you on, on the podcast. And Aaron, in fact, our first safety practitioner. So it's a very big achievement. Uh, Thanks very much, Rowan. And, and, and you did say at the start that it was relevant to legal professionals, employment professionals, and IR professionals. And I should add to that, it is relevant to safety professionals today. It, it is. We'll make it relevant. And um, I mean, for those uh, of our listeners who haven't had the pleasure of working with Matt and Aaron so far, Matt uh, establishing a very impressive profile in the Brisbane and probably national industrial relations market, having been practicing the area for around about 10 years now with a focus on mining, manufacturing, and transport. And uh, for Aaron, I mean, there wouldn't be many people in the Brisbane market that don't know Aaron. You're no stranger to industrial relations, uh, having a bit of a practice in IR and employment. Um, But safe to say your passion is the workplace health and safety space, being the the leader of our practice in Brisbane and having worked in that area for 20 or so years in a whole range of sectors, uh, including mining, manufacturing, uh, food manufacturing, and a whole range of others, both in private and public sectors. So we're very grateful to have both of your insights on the show today. Now, uh, Matt, Aaron, this is our third episode in the Closing Loopholes series of Inside IR. And as we've explained in previous episodes, the Senate inquiry on the Closing Loopholes Bill is now in full swing. We've had the submission deadline pass. Many submissions have been filed with the Senate committee. And we're now in the process of running through the hearings which are taking place in various different locations. The reporting deadline remains the 1st of February 2024. And we've also explained in our previous episodes that there are seven big ticket industrial relations changes that are contained within the bill. Now I'll just recap on that very briefly to set the scene. In our first episode we covered three of them. One was the new same job, same pay provisions. Two were the new minimum conditions for non-employees in the gig economy in the road transport distribution industry. Three was a new Fair Work Commission jurisdiction in regulating unfair contracts. And I should say, we're already doing a heap of work, Matt, in the same job, same pay space. That is causing a lot of angst, and there's, of course, still a lot of campaigning to go uh, in relation to whether those provisions should pass at all but very, uh, very worth having a look at those provisions if you're an employer and haven't yet, just to see what the impact of them might be on you. In our second episode on closing loopholes, we covered three more big ticket items. Number four was the new casual employee definition. Number five was the new definition for working out whether a worker is an employee or contractor. 
And number six were the new workplace delegate rights. And you might have seen uh, Tony Wood from the Melbourne office deliver a uh, very passionate view about the implications of those new provisions. So do check out episodes 13 and 14 of Inside IR if you've missed them to get across those six important big ticket IR changes. In particular, if you're an employer who hasn't had a close look at same job, same pay yet. Very, very worthwhile doing. Which brings us to the two topics that we have for you today on our third close, closing loopholes episode. Matt, you'll be covering the seventh big ticket item, and that is the new federal criminal offence for wage theft and the associated changes to penalties and thresholds for serious contraventions under the Fair Work Act. And Aaron, you'll take us through the various workplace health and safety changes, the amendments that are proposed in the bill, and tell us everything that we need to know about those. So Matt, let's get straight into it. Wage theft. Whether you're an employee, employer, Labor voter, Liberal voter, wherever you come from, I think it's, it's fair to say we all agree that underpayments of wages are unacceptable and there needs to be a continuous focus on wage compliance. I think that's pretty clear. No one's going to argue with that proposition. I think there are two difficulties, though, that, that I have with the policy debate so far in relation to wage theft. The first is that I don't think there's been adequate acknowledgement of the complexity uh, there is in achieving 100% compliance in terms of wages and other employment conditions. Given the complexity of both the laws, but also the content of awards and enterprise agreements. To take just one example, if you look at enterprise agreements that have perhaps uh, been rolled over over many years, maybe the, the first one was negotiated back in the early 90s, and there's been hard-fought negotiations of them ever since, and year upon year they're just rolled over with minimal change. If you look at the content of those agreements, it's clear that for most of them they haven't been drafted by lawyers. Often they're negotiated by operational personnel, or if you're lucky, maybe a HR or IR practitioner. They've been the subject of pretty intense negotiation, so that attempts to perhaps clarify conditions have been thwarted because there's been opposition at the bargaining table by unions or, or others. Um, and in many cases, they, as a result, haven't been refreshed over the years. And for many of them, you'll see that they incorporate a whole range of instruments like historical awards as at particular points in time or current version of awards in a manner that makes it almost impossible to determine how those incorporated instruments actually impact the express terms of the instrument. And I think if you weigh all of those things together, a lot of these enterprise agreements are uh, in part indecipherable. I think it's fair to say, and it makes it very difficult for employers to comply with them. What we're not seeing through these legislative amendments is any attempt to really acknowledge these complexities or, or deal with them. I think that's the first issue. The second is that, relatedly, the last thing that business needs at the moment is added regulatory uh, burdens particularly in light of the complexity that I've mentioned. That's a real challenge. Now, of course, these new laws are important. It's important that organisations are encouraged to take wage compliance seriously, but it needs to be done in a manner where the laws are relatively straightforward. It's easy enough for employers to comply with them and it doesn't already add to what is already a pretty significant regulatory burden on business. So I think my biggest concern with all of this, Matt, is complexity and 
ensuring that these amendments are delivered in such a way that minimises those burdens on business. Which I think brings me to my first question for you, Matt, and that is, what are the elements of the new wage theft offence and can it apply to inadvertent or mistaken breaches of wage obligations? Yeah, thanks, Ryan. I think with uh, the, the wage theft um, provisions that are being introduced, it's, um, as you said, the, the context is uh, an already extremely complex industrial system, um, uh, agreements that are very difficult to interpret in many cases. But I think also this is being introduced in, in the loopholes bill, which in itself is creating more complexity and I think deliberate uncertainty in some areas around say the definition of casual, the definition of employee, all of those things as well could flow into um, uh, uh, underpayments, non-compliance um, that would then be picked up by this, this offence provision as well. So um, I suppose it's not just coming into the existing IR system and its complexity, but um, part of a suite of changes that will, will increase that. In terms of the, the elements of the offence, the, the first element um, is that uh, an employer has, has to be uh, required to pay an amount to or for the benefit of an employee uh, under the Fair Work Act or another in industrial instrument like an enterprise agreement uh, or an award. Uh, the, that's obviously very broad. Um, uh, the reference to the Fair Work Act potentially brings in a range of different sources of entitlements. Um, uh, there are some carve-outs, though, in terms of what, what, that, what that covers. It, for some employers that are only part of the, the fair work system, the national system, because of state referrals, um, certain entitlements for, for employees of those employers are carved out, so long service leave, jury service leave, emergency service leave. Um, but those are pretty minor exceptions, really. In, in the main, this is going to cover pretty much every entitlement under the, the Fair Work Act. Um, industrial instruments um, that employees would be entitled to. Um, so the, the second element is that the employer has to intentionally engage in conduct, which can be an act or an omission. Um, uh, and the third element is that conduct uh, has to be intended to, to have the result um, of a failure to pay the required amount in full and when due to an employee. So in order to establish intention for that third element, the prosecution would have to prove beyond reasonable doubt, because this is a criminal offence, mm -hmm. we're, we're out of the, the territory of um, civil penalty proceedings that we've been in um, for the life of the Fair Work Act so far. Um, uh, the prosecution would have to prove that the employer either meant to bring about the result that the required amount was uh, not paid, um, or was aware that that result would occur in the ordinary course of events. So. I think that, that ties in well with the, the second part of the question, which is how would this apply to inadvertent or accidental um, underpayments? And um, uh, I think the, the government's position on this is that it isn't intended to capture underpayments that are accidental, in, inadvertent, or based on a genuine mistake, is the, the sort of the official position that's been, mm. been taken. The examples given are that if an employer genuinely misclassifies an employee and pays them uh, an hourly rate of pay uh, that's say $25 instead of $30 as a result of a genuine misclassification, then that wouldn't be caught by the provisions. But an employer who knowingly pays less than the correct rate would be caught. Yeah, um, so when we say knowingly, we mean knowing what the correct entitlement is, what the obligation is, but essentially choosing to disregard it and pay something less. 
Is that, that the position? That, that's right, but I think it, it just leads to another question. What's a, what's a, a knowing underpayment? What's a genuine misclassification? Mm. This just raises more, more questions. Um, and uh, because the offences create liability for emissions, it, it doesn't have to be a positive act that's the basis for um, mm. uh, liability under the, under the offence provision. It's possible that there could be um, a situation where an employer becomes aware of uh, a past practice of underpayments that might be continuing. Um, and if the employer then understands that there's a, there's a compliance issue and doesn't act quickly, then it's possible that that could, in theory, um, fall under the, the scope of the, the offence provisions as well. And I think that, that just reinforces that, um, uh, particularly if employers have payroll projects that are ongoing, um, often those take a long time to get off the ground in the first place after, after an issue is first identified, sometimes even longer to, to complete, get to the bottom of a, of a compliance issue. Um, but I think this really reinforces the need for, for employers to move quickly in those sort of situations. Yeah, no, I think that's right, Matt. And we should say, I think there is some room for clarity in the drafting about that intent element and in order to give employers comfort that it that won't capture those inadvertent breaches. There's some sort of quirks in the current drafting, I think, that could be improved upon. But as you say, there is certainly some comfort given by the explanatory memorandum on those issues. But and so Ron, I might chime in just for a second. Mm. For someone who engages in safety and has been involved in the, the criminal standard, the criminal test for quite some time, I think something that uh, clients and employers can take comfort in at least if the bill gets through and these changes come into play is mm. that for a prosecution to succeed, it, it is a high standard. It is, it's the criminal standard, as Matt has said. Mm. Uh, and so it, it is something whereby you know a prosecution is going to have to gather sufficient evidence um, to be able to successfully prosecute these offences. So, you know, I think that just does provide some comfort for someone who, you know, has been involved in these sorts of matters where prosecutors over many years have actually failed to discharge their prosecutorial standard of care and, you know, despite the fact that they've attempted to do so. <clears throat> and so, you know, em employers, whilst, you know, they need to be cognisant of this and, you know, as you say, you know, there needs to be, you know, sort of a disincentive for people not to... Uh, engage in conduct whereby they're deliberately underpaying people um, <clears throat> quite equally, where people are, are trying to do the right thing, trying to understand their duties, and they're complex because of drafting elements in mm. prior and historical enterprise agreements. They ought not be criminally liable for that. Yeah, no, it's, that's well said, Aaron. And, and I, I mean, you make a really good point talking about the criminal element of this because we, sh we should talk about intent in the context of the criminal provisions, Matt, because Brulongs and Props. This is now, we've done this before, previous episodes, but we have the Fair Work Act, the Secure Jobs Bill, the Closing Loopholes Bill, and now this is, apologies to those viewers listening in and not watching the video, but here is the Criminal Code, which, Aaron, you may well be familiar with a little bit in your role in the safety space, but as employment lawyers, to date, we haven't had to grapple with that, and now we will because it is heavily relevant to a whole range of things, which Matt, I think you'll cover shortly, including how individuals might become liable for a contravention of this new uh, criminal offence, but also on how corporate liability is established. How do you establish intent in the context of an employer? Does the intent need to be held by uh, the board or a director or the CEO? Or, or can, perhaps can intent be established by virtue of some lower level personnel in management. And that, that seems to me to be one of the biggest issues in this legislation. Is that something you're able to comment on that? 
Yeah, so I think um, uh, one, of the, one of the comments that I think you, you made, Rowan, when the bill was first introduced was that um, people needed to make friends with a good employment lawyer. Mm. I think now, when you're looking at this part of the bill, probably worth making friends with a good criminal lawyer too in some, yeah. some cases. Um, but, but hopefully not in most if people are able to, to um, maintain compliance um, mm. to a reasonable degree. But I think the, um, uh, the, the criminal code provisions on corporate uh, criminal responsibility apply to these, to these provisions in the Fair Work Act. So you really have to read these new sections together with, 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 with those parts of the criminal code. Um, and as you say, they're, they're new, different, um, not what uh, employers, HR professionals, are used to, to dealing with and grappling with when designing systems for compliance, looking at problems. Usually we're looking through that, the, the lens of the, the Fair Work Act and, and compliance with individual provisions rather than um, uh, broader concepts of, of responsibility. But maybe we'll just um, uh, jump through those. Um, the, the first um, point is that the, 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 fault, the fault element of intention that applies to this offence has to be attributed to the corporation that's done by finding that the corporation expressly, tacitly or impliedly authorised or permitted the commission of the offence. Um, and there's a number of different ways that a, that a court might get to that conclusion. The, the first of them is uh, a finding that the board of the corporation uh, intentionally carried out the relevant conduct or, or authorised or, or permitted the commission of the offence. Um, the second is that a high managerial agent of the body corporate intentionally engaged in the relevant conduct or again uh, authorised or permitted the commission of the offence. And so a high managerial agent has a pretty vague definition. It's not, it's not easy to, to tell exactly who will fall into that, into that category, um, but it's described in the criminal code as someone who has uh, uh, responsibility that may fairly be assumed to represent the body corporate's policy. So they don't actually need to be in a, I think, a, a policy-making role, but it's just someone who would be understood as making decisions on behalf of the, the corporation, um, such that their decisions would fairly be understood as attributed to the corporation, that they didn't need further authorisation for, for those decisions from the board, for example. Um, now, th those are two relatively straightforward paths to understand, to, to finding the fault element of intention, attributing that to the, to the corporation. There's two other much more general limbs. Um, the first is if a corporate culture existed within the body corporate that directed, encouraged, tolerated, or led to non-compliance with the relevant provision. And the second one, which is similar, is that the body corporate failed to create and maintain a corporate culture that required compliance with the relevant provision. So if there is evidence to suggest that there is a corporate culture um, or that practices are condoned at a senior level um, of uh, non-compliance with the Fair Work Act, for example, non-compliance with enterprise agreements, if that's understood, um, and there's evidence to suggest that that's been communicated within the organisation, that's a, that's a pathway for a court to find that, that a corporation is criminally responsible, even if um, the board, a uh, member of senior management, isn't actually aware of the, of the conduct in the, in the particular case or hasn't um, uh, expressly permitted or impliedly permitted the particular conduct that, that constitutes the offence. 
Yeah, and look, I think that's the most complex aspect of this, in my view, because it's it's not enough for the board and the CEO to say, well, we didn't know what was going on. We didn't know about the underpayment. It may not even be sufficient for the head of the relevant area, operational area, to not know about the, the underpayment. It might be sufficient that other people know. So it's the, the unknown unknowns that are really the risk here, I think, and thinking about how um, there might be issues within your business that could be attributed to knowledge of the corporation that aren't necessarily known by some of the key personnel, and, and that's worth looking into. But before we get to some of the tips, Matt, about how, to, um, how organisations might protect themselves from these provisions, how does the prosecution work and what are the potential consequences if an employer is found to have contravened this offence? Yeah, so, so prosecutions can only be bought, brought by the uh, DPP or the AFP, mm. so not the responsibility of the Fair Work Ombudsman, um, but no doubt many referrals would go from the, from the Ombudsman to the CDPP and the, the AFP, but ultimately they're the agencies that will make a decision about whether to prosecute in a particular case. Um, in terms of uh, what conduct the, the offence provision applies to, it, it'll apply to conduct after the, the provision commences. So um, at the moment, it's unclear exactly when that date will be. There's not a precise time frame set in the bill. Um, the latest time frame, though, is that it would commence on the, the 1st um, of January, I think, 2025. Yeah. That's right. Um, so uh, if the bill is passed in its current form, that, that date might be brought forward. That's, that seems to be the latest date that we're looking at as to, in terms of commencement time. I think with so, the intent that organisations can get their house in order ahead of commencement. Mm. Yeah. And uh, so uh, it's made clear as well that um, even if there's a course of conduct that, that starts before uh, commencement, um, if, the, if the conduct is continuing after commencement, then that can still form uh, the basis for an offence under the, under the provision. And given conduct could be an omission, I mean, it might be an omission to fix some glitch or wrong formula in the payroll system that then triggers the underpayment, presumably. That's right. And I think um, when, the, when the mental element is intention of the offence might be established by knowledge that something is happening, mm. um, if you already know that something is wrong, and the, the emissions continuing, then I think you're in that situation where, you know, even if the, the knowledge was obtained prior to the commencement of the offence provisions, then they would still have application in that, in that scenario. Yeah. Um, in terms of uh, consequences, if there is a conviction, the maximum penalties are, uh, I think, the, the highest we've seen in the, in the Fair Work Act, certainly. Um, so there's, there's a new penalty for an individual that's found um, guilty of uh, a maximum of 10 years imprisonment or um, a fine uh, or both. So there's an ability to impose a fine as well as in imprisonment on an individual. The, the maximum fine that can be imposed is three times the underpayment amount um, uh, or 5,000 penalty units, which works out at the moment about 1.5 million for an individual as the maximum penalty. Um, for a corporation, um, again, the, the penalty is the greater of three times the underpayment amount or uh, 25,000 penalty units, so five times the, the individual, um, which uh, I think, again, works out around seven and a, seven and a half million, 7.8 million at the moment based on the, the current penalty unit amounts. Um, there is a course of conduct provision 
that applies if there are multiple underpayments uh, that arose out of a course of conduct by the person. Um, and in those circumstances, if there is a course of conduct found, the conduct's taken to be just one offence. Um, however, and so that would impact on the, um, uh, the, the penalty unit aspect of the, the maximum penalty. So mm -hmm. that would then be, for a corporation, 25,000 penalty units for that course of conduct as that element. But the, the other half of it, which is looking at uh, what is three times the amount of the underpayment, that would still be looked at collectively. So even if uh, underpayments are grouped together um, as a course of conduct, when assessing what's that theoretical maximum, um, it'll still be three times the, the total underpayment amount before taking into account the, the course of conduct provision. Yeah. I mean, on any measure, it's a significant escalation of the penalties that are available under the Fair Work Act, and that will no doubt get some attention. But I'm interested, Matt, we've spoken largely about private sector employers as being you know, potentially subject to the offence. Let's talk public sector and also individuals. How, to what extent does it apply to the public sector and how might individuals be found to be liable? So the new offence provision will apply to the, to the Commonwealth and Commonwealth government agencies as well. Um, uh, it won't apply to state governments and state government agencies. The bill makes that clear. Um, in terms of uh, application to individuals, again, to, to find that out, um, other than where the individual is the employer, um, in which case they can be directly liable, but for, for other employees, officers of a, of a corporate employer, um, the, the liability is sourced in the criminal code. So there are what are, what's referred to as related offence provisions. Mm. Um, so you have to go digging for those in the, in the criminal code. They're not in the Fair Work Act. But they, are, they have some similarities to concepts that we're familiar with in the Fair Work Act. So primarily relevant is the um, uh, provision which makes it an offence um, to aid, abet, counsel or procure the commission of another offence. So that's similar to the current accessorial liability provisions in the Fair Work Act. And so uh, in those circumstances where someone has been uh, in, involved in the, the, the contravention, engaged in conduct, with the intent, the intent to aid or abet the contravention, um, or and here aid or abet the the offence, um, then they can be found uh, uh, guilty and will be would be subject to the same penalties as a as an individual employer. So that maximum ten year imprisonment, um, maximum five thousand penalty units, or three times the the underpayment would apply to that individual. Yeah. And how does, I mean, we mentioned um, it not applying to state governments, but there's, of course, also some state uh, wage theft offence provisions already in place in Victoria and Queensland. I mean, how is all of this going to interact? Is it essentially the same elements or are there some differences there? Yeah, I, th I think there's going to be a real patchwork now. So there are already differences between the Queensland and Victorian provisions. Mm. Um, the, the Queensland provisions are simpler, just introduced into the, into the criminal code in the existing stealing offence to sort of clarify how that, how that existing offence applies, um, whereas the Victorian model was to introduce a standalone um, offence um, and uh, separately regulate wage theft um, under much more detailed legislation. I suppose the, the, the common thread between those two is that the, in the Victorian uh, provision, it's uh, dishonesty is mm -hmm. the, the key element. Um, in Queensland, it's fraudulence. Um, that has a particular meaning in the context of, of stealing. Um, 
but uh, neither of those concepts appears in the in the new provision uh, in the in the Fair Work Act that's proposed by the bill. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that difference plays out. And I think neither of those uh, existing offence regimes um, deal quite as clearly as this one does with omissions. Um, and uh, so it'll be interesting to see how that um, uh, is applied. There seems to be a little bit more scope uh, for this to apply to what we would think of as inadvertent or accidental admissions in theory, uh, uh, um, uh, inadvertent or accidental um, uh, contraventions. Uh, than is the case for the for the state-based legislation. Yeah, I mean, re refer to my earlier comments about complexity and layers of regulation. I mean, it is quite unfortunate, isn't it? But let's hope all of that gets resolved at some point. Now, before we come to what should employers be doing to reduce risk here, Matt, because I know everyone wants to hear about that, cooperation agreements with the FWO, what are they and to what extent does that give employers comfort if they enter into them? So the, the bill proposes that there be a new uh, alternative uh, mechanism for the flow and employers um, uh, in light of the introduction of these new criminal penalties that uh, you can approach the, the ombudsman um, and enter into a what's called a cooperation agreement, um, which is intended to provide a, it's described as a safe harbour from criminal prosecution. Um, the, I suppose the, the catch with that is that you have to get the Ombudsman to agree to that. And the, the actual scope of any cooperation agreement determines its effectiveness. So um, a cooperation agreement uh, only applies as a protection from prosecution for the, the criminal conduct that's actually dealt with in the cooperation agreement. It seems it has to be clear um, what, what it actually covers. Um, and also uh, the, the people that it covers. So you could be in a situation where um, uh, if a cooperation agreement doesn't cover all of the relevant facts and circumstances, uh, that, that it might not be effective. Um, if it doesn't cover all of the potentially involved people, um, that also might not be effective. So uh, I think there, there's some limitations to it as a, as a solution mm -hmm. to, the, to the compliance problem or risk that employers would be facing. Um, and all of it is conditional on the Ombudsman's discretion as well. There's uh, a list of factors that, that have to be considered um, when they're deciding whether to enter into a co cooperation agreement with an employer, but the Ombudsman still re retains a discretion. So there's no guarantees, even if those factors are met, that that'll actually um, be available. Sounds like a much better strategy is to avoid actually engaging in the, the offence to start with, Matt. So how do, how do employers do that? Do you have any tips for employers that are looking at preparing for the introduction of these new provisions? Well, I think the, the common thread through uh, all of it in terms of the, what are the potential defences to, to a prosecution? How do you avoid being in a situation where there is non-compliance in the first place? is due diligence about your systems and processes from a um, board level down. In terms of the defences that apply to a prosecution, there's a lot of work that can be done that achieves the same outcome that will actually get to a compliance outcome for employers that, that then in the event that there has been any inadvertence, accidental non-compliance, um, uh, will put them in a really strong position to defend any criminal charge. So we talked before about the concepts of uh, corporate culture yeah. 
that's one of the one of the pathways to, to liability under the offence provisions. If you're making really clear as an organisation what your values are, what your approach is to compliance, putting systems and, and processes in place to uh, properly resource those systems as well, make sure that your payroll system is set up in a, in a compliant way, then you're positioning yourself in the, in the best possible way to, de to defend any proceeding if something does go wrong in the future. Yeah, and investing time to understand the things that those senior people in the organisation might not currently be across, just given the, the breadth of those corporate uh, liability provisions as well. So that's really useful, Matt. Just to close out, uh, it's not just wage theft that appears in these uh, this part of the amending bill. What other changes are being made to the threshold for serious contraventions and the penalties regime for civil remedy breaches, Matt? Yeah, so the serious contraventions provision that hasn't really seen much use yet. Um, it's there as a, as a threat risk in everyone's mind, but um, I think has been difficult to, to actually use in practice for the, for the Ombudsman. So the, the bill will change that to lower the standard to, to recklessness, which would bring in um, a, a lot of cases that would currently probably, probably fail if there was a, was a proceeding on a, on a serious contravention basis. Mm. It, in addition to that, um, there's uh, significant increases to uh, most of the existing civil penalties in the Act, all of the key ones, including um, compliance with the National Employment Standards, awards, enterprise agreements and the like, um, multiplying that by five times. So I think uh, what that ends up now for, it, for an employer for a contravention is around $470,000 would be the new penalty amount um, yeah. if the bill was passed for a, for a single contravention of the National Employment Standards. That's obviously a very, very large increase over the, the current penalty that's I think now $93,000 or thereabouts. Yeah, no, thanks, Matt. And I mean, no doubt the intention behind these amendments is to ensure that wage compliance maintains a, a regular appearance on the board agenda. And I think for, for many uh, employers, it already does, but these, uh, these changes will certainly ensure that. And it's also a call to action, I think, for employers to have a closer look at their enterprise agreements in particular, because I know um, enterprise agreements are often a source of uh, lack of clarity on terms and conditions. And many are drafted in a way that just makes this whole compliance uh, exercise so much more difficult. And so there's really two things that can be done there. One is that in the process of enterprise bargaining, actually check in with your payroll teams. Actually see whether these changes that you're negotiating into the agreement or even existing provisions, how easy are they to actually implement from a systems perspective? You might be surprised about the answers to some of those questions. And secondly, take the opportunity where you can to actually tidy up some of these historical drafting quirks because ambiguity is no longer our friend and sometimes ambiguity is the trade-off or, or compromise where you get some pushback at the bargaining table, unions or employees aren't prepared to agree to some changes and, and sometimes clarity is what's sacrificed in order to reach a, a compromise deal. But I think we're starting to see that there's some really significant downside in that and downside that is really enduring and uh, escalates the compliance burden for, for business. So I think these are things that increasingly employers uh, are looking at and trying to actually simplify to make all of this stuff just easier to manage. 
So thanks very much for those insights, Matt. And that brings us to you, Aaron, and workplace health and safety. Uh, you've been very popular of late, Aaron. I think it's safe to say in the safety space with such a huge focus on psychosocial hazards, on the new positive duty to, as far as reasonably practicable, prevent sexual harassment, and a whole range of other safety-related um, compliance issues. The list goes on. As far as the closing loopholes bill goes, though, probably hasn't been as much attention on the WHS aspects. And I think that's partly due to the fact that there's so many other really significant, uh, perhaps controversial amendments that are being proposed in that bill that are occupying a lot of the airtime. Uh, but also perhaps because the WHS-related changes in the bill don't apply to everyone. And I was hoping, Aaron, you might kick us off by telling us what are the workplace health and safety changes that are foreshadowed in the bill and who are they going to impact? Yeah, Rob, look, you're exactly right. Look, I think the starting point here is there are uh, just a few changes that's mm -hmm. worth discussion today. Those changes aren't as far-reaching as all of the things that you've talked about today and in previous podcasts that you've covered in terms of uh, what the bill uh, is doing in terms of proposed changes for uh, employers going forward. But look, there's a couple of important things here. Uh, first of all, um, a number of changes that apply if the bill gets through include the introduction of an industrial manslaughter offence at a Commonwealth level. Um, and look, this isn't really surprising given that this was first proposed back in 2018 by Marie Boland who mm -hmm. undertook a review into sort of work health and safety laws uh, and whether they are adequate and what changes ought to be made to those laws. Uh, and since 2018, and I must say Queensland's been one of the leaders at the state level in this, um, there have been industrial manslaughter laws that have been uh, introduced into safety regimes at a state and territory level. Uh, and we've got them in Queensland here, we've got them in Victoria, we've got them in Western Australia, uh, we've got them in the ACT, and we've also got them now in the Northern Territory. And look, there's proposed um, provisions for New South Wales and South Australia as well. So what we've actually got here is the Commonwealth now saying, look, we're going to fall into line with what was proposed in 2018 and we're going to introduce an industrial manslaughter offence into the Commonwealth Work Health and Safety Act. So um, your point's a good one. That act um, has a fairly narrow application. Um, that is, uh, unlike a lot of the Fair Work Act changes uh, that are proposed, it doesn't apply just to all uh, employers who are covered by the Fair Work Act. It'll apply to organisations that are Commonwealth organisations, departments, agencies or public authorities that have their own Commonwealth existence. Um, and a small number of large private sector companies that are captured by the federal scheme, that is the Federal Work Health and Safety Act and the Federal Work Health and Safety Workers' Compensation Scheme. So that's the application of the industrial manslaughter offence. There's a couple of other things I think I should mention. Uh, the Asbestos Safety Eradication Agency is going to um, have increased functions. So it's an agency, um, Rowan, that has been established at a federal level um, doesn't have a regulatory function, uh, as a function of trying to assist in the eradication of asbestos that's in our built environment, that's in communities, uh, by providing advice and guidance and liaising with stakeholders, you know, including uh, you know, state-based government agencies who actually have the power uh, to create laws and enforce laws when it comes to asbestos. Uh, the functions are now going to extend to managing silica-related diseases. Now, there's been a lot of discussion in the safety space about the emergence of silica disease, uh, and there's, in fact, been um, already some change at a regulatory level in Queensland. You know, we've got a code of practice now dealing with managing uh, risks of harm associated with silica dust. So I think what we can see in terms of its practicality is 
the agency's likely to be proactive about this um, because it's important, there's a lot of discussion about it, and it might actually ult ultimately mean that the agency has discussions with those who do regulate the industry, and we might see a change in regulation and law impacting those in you know, stone bench industries, in uh, industries where there is naturally occurring uh, silica in, in, in gravel and underground environments and tunnelling, et cetera. And so our clients who are involved in those industries may be impacted in the future by uh, regulatory change. I think the, the last thing, um, again, is a, is, a, is, a, is a minor change at the Commonwealth level for those who are covered by Commonwealth workers' compensation laws, and, and that is there is now going to be a presumption that if a first responder to an emergency suffers post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, that that person is in fact covered by the workers' comp scheme. That is, it's uh, the response that caused the PTSD, uh, they don't have to prove it. So um, that to me seems like you know, a, a sensible reform. Um, so, look, they're the, the sort of three elements that are contained within the bill, Ron. Yeah, and they, I mean, they, as you say, they seem to be the less contentious elements of, of the bill and uh, are probably those that are more likely to pass without too much amendment compared to some of the others. But assuming they do pass in that form, Aaron, when are they slated to actually commence operation? The industrial manslaughter offence is 1 July 2024. Uh, I think an important element of that is just understanding that it won't have any retrospective application, so there can be no looking back in the rear mirror at conduct that occurred prior to that date. Okay. So it can really only be the committing of an offence post the 1 July 2024, so that's an important feature of it, and sensibly so. Mm. Uh, and the other provisions will commence uh, on royal assent, um, that is in relation to the change to the functions of the agency. and the um, workers' compensation reforms. Yeah, I think some of the workers' compensation changes might commence 28 days after, but there are various different provisions there. And there's a lot, lot more of this detail that you can find in our summary. Uh, if you Google closing loopholes and HSF, you will uh, find our detailed comprehensive summary on these changes as well. Um, now, one thing that occurred to me, Aaron, I'm no expert in safety space, but industrial manslaughter, as you say, is not a, a new concept, already exists at state level. How does the new proposed Commonwealth offence compare with the existing state-based offences? Yeah, there's a lot of similarities. Um, what surprises me, to be totally frank with you, Rowan, is uh, that across all jurisdictions, uh, lawmakers can't come up with exactly the same words to create an industrial manslaughter offence in safety legislation so that there are no differences. Um, so that people like ourselves, lawyers who you know, love to fight about words on paper in legislation, you know, can, uh, you know, decide that ultimately that means different outcomes can occur in different jurisdictions. Well, so it seems, seems we're having the same problem in the wage theft space as well. <laughs> yeah, look, precisely. And, and, and you know, um, it, it's a problem, it seems to me, that could easily be overcome, but it, it's not. We attempted to uh, start a process of harmonisation in the safety space way back in 2008, and our listeners will tell me to stop talking about that because it's, <laughs> it's been an abject failure. You know, if it received some harmonisation, uh, but as we all know, uh, with political influences, chains of governments and um, other stakeholders involved in how laws ultimately look, that doesn't uh, always end up to be the case. But so at a Commonwealth level, what we're looking at here is um, introduction of a new provision in the Commonwealth Work Health and Safety Act. Fundamentally, the elements um, of the new industrial manslaughter offence will be these, uh, that a duty holder, and so there's two duty holders who can be found guilty of this offence. Uh, that is one, uh, the person who conducts the business or undertaking, which is a well-known sort of terminology in the safety space, mm -hmm. but we're really talking about here the Commonwealth, Commonwealth agencies 
uh, Commonwealth authorities or that small select group of private sector companies I talked about. So it's um, you know corporate responsibility that sort of um, Matt was talking about in the wage theft space, as well as finding uh, you know the Commonwealth responsible um, or their officers. <clears throat> so um, their officers can also be found guilty of industrial manslaughter. So if they they engage in intentional conduct which breaches their duties under the Work Health and Safety Act, uh, and that intentional conduct that breaches the duty then involves a death of an individual, not just a worker. So anyone uh, who is uh, killed by the conduct, and this is really important, third element of it, that in fact the duty holder, you know, the Commonwealth or you know, the officer was sort of reckless or negligent mm. as to the conduct and the risk that death might result. And so sort of recklessness and negligence are two really important features of the way the uh, new offence provision will apply. And Rowan, sort of to pick up on your theme, um, they're not new concepts, obviously, um, that have existed in the criminal law for a long period of time. Uh, they exist in some of the industrial manslaughter offences across the states and territories already um, that I'm sure many of our listeners have already looked at. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of similarities. Um, I think one uh, thing to mention is there are fairly harsh penalties. Uh, we're talking 25 years imprisonment. We're talking $18 million fines. Uh, you know, for, uh, you know, government and corporate bodies. Um, so they're sort of at the peak of the potential outcomes. I think they replicate what's in Victoria, uh, but they're higher than some other jurisdictions and they're higher than what we've got here in Queensland. And, you know, I sort of wonder whether one of the flow-on effects of this is that ultimately governments might decide, given that the, the idea of this is about deterrence, you know, you want to deter people from breaching safety laws and killing people, is why don't we, if we're going to harmonise something, at least have... You know, all of us, the maximum potential outcome for, for breaching these laws. Um, so that's, that's what we're going to expect if the bill gets through. <clears throat> yeah, look, that, that makes sense. And, I mean, what tips, given, I mean, you've mentioned there are some differences, but broadly the, the offences are known across all jurisdictions. Uh, what tips would you give um, PCBU's employers as part of that uh, in order to reduce the risk of contravention? Yeah, um, so, starting point is, I don't think I mentioned this in my earlier answer, that um, this is an offence provision, it's mm. not creating any new duties. You know? And so, in my mind, it's a little bit of a distraction. Uh, I think duty holders under safety regimes should focus on, you know, discharging the duties and what that requires. And so, it's a little trite to say it, to be frank with you. Mm. Uh, but what tips would you give? The tip you'd give is, uh, okay, so you're a Commonwealth agency, uh, you're an officer, uh, what is it that my duty entails under the Work Health and Safety Act and regulations? You know, how do I go about discharging that duty? Uh, and the way that I'm going about discharging that duty, uh, is that in fact actually an adequate way to do it? You know, so it's that vigilance around, you know, continually um, looking at uh, what's going on uh, in terms of safety management systems, the effectiveness of those systems, Right, on an ongoing basis and putting checks and balances in place uh, for the organisation and for officers to satisfy themselves that those systems in practice when a worker you know, arrives at work uh, on a particular day uh, will in fact be safe by following the systems of work that are laid out by an employer. And I must say, I, I think um, uh, you know, I can talk to sort of my own experience in this space in um, answering this question because uh, we here at Herbert Smith Freehills have had a long-running battle with the prosecutor here in Queensland um, 
in a matter where there was an industrial manslaughter charge that was laid against a very large um, corporate entity. Now, I, I'm not going to mention details and, nor, nor names. The matter is still before the courts uh, in a particular way. Um, but what I can say is this. <clears throat> um, it was sort of one of the first charges against a large corporate entity here in Australia. Uh, so, you know, people have been scratching their heads a little bit to understand how it might work. Uh, and I'm really pleased to say we were successful through the um, committal phase uh, of this particular prosecution, uh, whereby the magistrate had to look at whether the evidence that was adduced during the committal was enough for the magistrate to say, you know, corporate body, you ought to go to trial and face the, the charge of industrial manslaughter. Um, the magistrate ultimately found, based on the evidence, that there wasn't enough evidence for a jury who was properly instructed based on the evidence to, to commit our client to trial. Uh, and it, it, it sort of boiled down to those very basic elements. That is, the evidence satisfied the magistrate that there was a, an adequate safe system in, of work in place for the task at hand on the day the unfortunate death occurred. And um, equally, <coughs> there was proof through the evidence of training and instruction and supervision by the corporate PCBU who was facing this very serious charge. And then there was a finding that, yes, there was a death and it was an unfortunate outcome, <clears throat> uh, but the conduct itself couldn't be attributed to uh, our client, um, ultimately. And so, you know, that goes to show that, you know, following, you know, all of the sort of fundamental elements of compliance that we've talked about for many, many years when it comes to what duty holders are going to do under work health and safety laws, uh, we just need to continue to be vigilant to do so. Yeah, thanks, Aaron. I mean, it occurs to me there's a lot we can learn from you and your practice in the safety space when it comes to looking at controls, measures that you put in place to reduce the risk of wage non-compliance and therefore criminal liability in that jurisdiction as well. You can see there are some parallels to be drawn there and I certainly know who to call when I'll have some questions on the application of the criminal code, Aaron, so I'll keep you on speed dial. Look forward to it. So there we have it. Look, more IR reforms that are going to regularly occupy the boardroom agenda. If you aren't already looking at your own wage compliance and starting to modernise your payroll processes, I think it's fair to say that you're well behind the pack. So please make that a priority for the end of 2023 and into 2024. To help, as I mentioned, we've produced a comprehensive summary on the closing loopholes bill. Google Closing Loopholes and HSF, and you'll be able to find that pretty easily. Do have a look and get in touch with any member of your HSF industrial relations team if you've got any questions about that content. Now, as always, we love feedback on Inside IR, so please comment, direct message, or send an email to insideir at hsf.com. Otherwise, thank you for joining us, and we look forward to seeing you on the next episode of Inside IR.